Omaha Public Radio presents another special luncheon broadcast from the Omaha Press Club on Noon Forum. On today's program, we'll hear a panel discussion on the topic, clear and unbiased facts about changes in health care without all the hype. The members of the panel will be Rowan Zetterman, a professor of internal medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and formerly chief of staff for the Nebraska Western Iowa Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, Lee Hanke, Chief Executive Officer of the Nebraska Health Network, formerly an executive at Prime Therapeutics and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska, and Jeffrey Bamoris, a Senior Director with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois. The moderator will be Sean McGuire, founder of E.D. Bellis, and a former health policy staff member for the United States Senate Finance Committee. This program, co-sponsored by Marketplace Nebraska, E.D. Bellis, and the Omaha Press Club, was recorded by Omaha Public Radio on Thursday afternoon, October 20th, 2016, for broadcast at this time. The opinions expressed are those of the panelists and do not necessarily represent those of the Omaha Press Club, KIOS-FM, or the Omaha Public School District. Here now to introduce the program is our moderator, Sean McGuire. U.S. Healthcare, where do we begin. I wanted to bring you up to one of the tallest buildings uh, in town so we could have a high-level discussion about what's happening because there certainly is a lot happening. I don't think people really understand how large the healthcare care uh, segment is in our economy. It's the size of France, if you can picture that. It's $3 trillion. And it's going under a massive transformation, especially over the last 10 years. We had the Affordable Care Act, which was passed in 2010. We're not going to spend much time talking about that law because I'm sure you're all sick of of hearing about it. But we do need to recognize that that law really had a a major impact in how health care is going to be delivered in the next several years, if not the rest of our lifetime. And so we wanted to uh, get together a fantastic panel with a diverse background to talk about some of these issues. A second piece of legislation that we're going to be talking about today is something you probably have not heard about, and it's called MACRA, which is the Medicaid and CHIP Reauthorization Act. And the reason why this is so important is for the first time in a long time, they have taken a, a major step in uh, changing how the healthcare providers, and in particular physicians, are reimbursed in an effort to move towards a more quality-based reimbursement structure. And our experts are going to talk to you a little bit more about that because they're much more well-versed on that than me. But without much further ado, I'm going to introduce our first panelist. I've asked them all to make a few opening remarks, and then I'm going to ask them a, a couple follow-up questions, and then the floor is yours. You took the time to come up here. Please take advantage of the the note cards there and write any questions down and we will try to get as many as we can. Our first panelist is a great guy, a friend of ours, and uh, he's been on America's Healthcare Challenge, which is a, a radio program that I host, and one of our, our best guests, I must say, and I'm wow. so pleased that you could come down here. Lee Hankey is the CEO of the Nebraska Health Network, and you're going to be hearing a lot about these guys in the next several years because they are a joint venture between Nebraska Medicine and Methodist uh, to become an accountable care organization, right, Lee? Correct. Yeah. Correct. And so I'd uh, ask you to uh, tell folks a little bit about your background and then uh, your role at the, uh, the Nebraska Health Network, if you would, please. Sure, sure. Thanks a lot, Sean. Thanks, Mark. How's the mic working? Everyone picking up okay? 
Excellent. Well, as Sean said, I'm Lee Hamke. I'm the CEO of the Nebraska Health Network. Uh, we are an accountable care organization uh, formed by Nebraska Medicine and Methodist Health System in 2010. So we've been around for about uh, six years. Uh, we're focused on driving superior value in healthcare for patients, uh, looking at what's the overall quality of care we're offering patients as well as smarter spending, lower costs, higher patient satisfaction. So in that, and we'll talk a little bit about this as we go on today, we're, we're really pursuing value with employers, with consumers, with Medicare, uh, with our health plan uh, partners, Blue Cross, Aetna, um, Humana, and others around value-based contracts. So when we're successful in driving success, then our physicians are, are rewarded in that. And so that's a, a lot about the new model. There's just so much change going on right now in healthcare. And, uh, that change is transformational, and we welcome that. It, it's time for some of that transformational change. And I'm, I'm reminded when I think about this a little bit um, of a quote by uh, a lady named Margaret Wheatley. And Margaret said, the thing we fear most in organizations, uh, fluctuations, uh, disturbances, and imbalances are the primary sources of creativity. So if you think about that, and you think about everything going on in healthcare, the rising costs, the uncertain quality, and so forth, those are the, exactly the things that are going to drive uh, creativity and better value for patients. And in macro, we're starting to see that, and it's going to be great to talk a little bit with you about that today. So thanks, Sean, for having me. I see a lot of familiar faces, so I can only assume those individuals are here to see our other two panelists today. Um, but uh, thanks again for having us, and thanks for coming today. Thanks, Lee. Our next panelist is uh, Dr. Rowan Zetterman. Dr. Zetterman, welcome to the Press Club. Well, good afternoon, everyone. Uh, I'm Rowan Zetterman. Uh, I'm a uh, academic physician. I'm an internist and gastroenterologist by training. Uh, I've spent, uh, other than my uh, two years in the United States Army at Walter Reed, I've spent the last 40 years uh, here in Omaha at either the University of Nebraska or Creighton University or at the VA, where I also was the chief medical officer for about 10 years. <clears throat> Probably the, my interest in healthcare reform really goes back a little over 20 years ago. Uh, when managed care had come along and I was looking at it and how it was going to affect the practice of medicine, thinking about what it might actually do to research and some of the other things that were important to learning how to be better at what we do in delivery of health care. But the last few years I've had two wonderful opportunities to work on two legislative resolutions uh, for the state of Nebraska. Uh, and in doing that, <clears throat> thinking about what are the central building blocks that Nebraska needs in order to make health care reform work. And so we came up during those, those uh, deliberations with what we call the eight building blocks for Nebraska, and I thought those were useful today. The first building block that I think is crucial is that there must be health care availability for all, that we need some way to pay for health care for everybody in the state of Nebraska, whatever that mechanism is. Um, this was advertised as an apolitical event, so I'm not saying just Medicaid expansion. There's lots of things we need to do. But I don't believe that we can control the costs until everybody is in the system paid for by some mechanism. You all know that we cost transfer more than a billion dollars of commercial insurance in this state to pay for the uninsured. So therefore, to drop the prices of commercial insurance, we need to make sure those people are all paid for in some way. Second thing is that we need effective models of health care. <clears throat> we've paid fee-for-services, how we've all lived. All of us as physicians have basically see one patient, you, you take care of them, you charge the insurance company a fee 
We're going to have to look at alternative models, and uh, Ms. Schenke can tell us about accountable care organizations and where they go. Uh, if you will, that's a way uh, of an alternative payment model. But there are other things, bundling uh, of care, so that now if you get it, would come to the University of Nebraska, for example, to get a liver transplant, your insurance company probably has a contract with them that pays them a certain amount of money. If they do it, if they do the liver transplant for less money, then they make money. And if they do it, if it costs them more, then they lose money so that they're, they've got some skin in the game. We need transparency of quality and safety. We should know about all of the organizations that deliver our health care and what the level of quality and safety is in those organizations, whether that's a small or a large organization. I believe we need a statewide database. We need to look at large, what some people call big data. We talk about big data in the business world. Well, there's big data in healthcare also. We need to have all of the healthcare data. Almost every physician in the state, almost every hospital has a fully electronic health record. We could aggregate all that information. Let me tell you an interesting story. Using that data, there was an article just a week or two ago, I think it was in, in Chicago where it had been done, uh, in which they discovered that two drugs together had an increased risk of sudden death. You couldn't find that in the research trials of those two drugs because A, they weren't given together in those research trials along the way, but by analyzing these sort of records it was discovered. Population health, obesity, diabetes mellitus, all of those sort of things are common in Nebraska. We need to look at how we control those things. We need personal responsibility. We've got, a healthcare, got to have a health care system that promotes personal responsibility. 20% of Nebraskans smoke. <clears throat> We've got to figure out how we reduce that percentage. Uh, 30 to 40% of Nebraskans are overweight, me included, uh, if, you, if you simply do my weight. We've got to figure out how we get personal responsibility for exercise. We've got to address health care work, workforce shortages. If you go to rural Nebraska, there aren't any psychiatrists out there to speak of. There aren't many clinical psychologists. There are fewer family physicians that we need, fewer general surgeons, fewer of a variety of nurse practitioners, PAs, et cetera, that all need to be there. And perhaps most importantly of all, the eighth <clears throat> building block is we need statewide health care planning that involves all of the players within the state, probably run by the state government actually to do it. But somebody needs to put their hand on the tiller and push that sailboat ahead with statewide health care planning. So those are my initial comments. Thank you. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. Zediman. Our next panelist is uh, Mr. Jeffrey Bamoris, uh, all the way from, uh, were you at last, Chicago recently? All the way from Chicago uh, to uh, visit with us today. And uh, he's an actuary by training and um, has got some uh, really neat things going on with his organization. And so, Mr. Bamoris, uh, the floor is yours. Well, thank you for letting me be in Omaha today, I'm usually on a plane. And thank you for uh, letting me be an expert by some means. So, uh, I am an actuary. I've heard all the jokes about them, so if you want to say any, I've heard, I've heard them all. Um, my background uh, started 35 years ago as a lead actuary for the major national accounts for Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, and from there went to work in Washington, D.C. Uh, under the Carlisle Group, under Mr. Frank Carlucci as their international uh, head of their um, healthcare division. <clears throat> one thing I've done, I now represent as President C CEO of Apex Management Group, one thing I've done uh, was develop a financial model that helped both large and mid-sized municipalities and commercial organizations 
to stabilize their healthcare costs over a three-year period using a structured financing. Um, we've done that for 19 years now all over the country, and I can really get into the weeds in it um, today if you'd like and answer any questions about that, but I won't bore you with the specifics. But we've issued in the marketplace over $10 billion, uh, and I've worked actually with ConAgra on that program uh, long ago, uh, companies like Walmart and some large commercial facilities. My main role right now uh, began three years ago in developing Apex Management Group to look at the minimal essential coverage and where the opportunities lie for us in the market and where we can fill a need. Most of what we've seen out there is minimum essential coverages that are just skinny plans, plans that really don't do much for the individual that is choosing it, but allows them to divert away from the tax ramifications. What we did was take another approach. We developed uh, MEC programs that are a lot more expansive and they're built to use and then collect, as uh, the fine doctor said here, collect data so we know really what's going on in the areas where there's low-wage employees, employees hosp um, ho hospitality, staffing. Um, most recently, we did a transaction with the Ulico Group in Washington, D.C. to cover um, Taft-Hartley and Union employees uh, while they're in, their in the apprenticeship programs. So we've had a lot of success there. We've also uh, used our financing uh, vehicle to create rate caps in the minimum essential coverages for four years. So we've grown from one life now to 30,000 lives, and we're doing it quickly. And I think what we do best is we stand by our product, and we offer some great services. So I'm happy to be here and um, answer any questions you have. About well, thanks so much, uh, Jeff, uh, for your opening remarks. Mm -hmm. uh, minimum essential co uh, coverage, to, to clarify, is um, what is uh, required under the Affordable Care Act for, for an insurance policy to cover to be compliant with the law. And uh, <laughs> what you've seen is, uh, is a lot of uh, organizations, uh, like Jeff talked about, try to create products like this, and um, they're, they're turning out <coughs> to not be as comprehensive as they, they should be. So we wanted to uh, clarify that because as we transition to my first question uh, to Lee, uh, in that uh, we have a, an individual mandate to, to purchase coverage for, for, for consumers. Employers are required to offer coverage. Um, we've had large insurers pulling out of the marketplace, which has created some volatility in, in, in the insurance market. Um, there's a lot of business owners out here right now. Uh, can you talk to, to them a little bit about what, what uh, all of these changes are, are going to mean to them? Uh, from an insurance standpoint? Yeah, we'll, we'll start by talking a little bit about um, the individual marketplace in Nebraska. That's been in the news quite a bit lately. The most uh, recent was Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska making the decision uh, to pull out of the market. But let's keep in mind that other insurers, United Healthcare, decided to pull out here. Um, Aetna, across the nation, uh, dropped out of 11 states. Uh, they're left in four states, one of those being Nebraska. Uh, Humana, as well, went down. Um, from 15 to, I believe, uh, 11 states. And so insurers are all kind of coming to the same conclusion around the marketplaces. It's um, it's a place where many of them were struggling and, and just losing money. And, and so you start to think about some of the reasons for that. And first of all, this was a new marketplace, a very uncertain marketplace. Um, 
A lot of the insurers made certain assumptions about utilization that was dead wrong. Uh, utilization was much higher than they ever expected, and I didn't uh, talk a lot about my background, but I'm, I'm a pharmacist, and I was at Blue Cross Blue Shield until about a year and a half ago, and so I remember some of those early discussions trying to understand what's this market going to look like, and how would we estimate what what uh, premiums should be, and, and you know the the utilization really outstripped a lot of those assumptions. There was pent up demand. And another thing, individuals that were sicker and higher utilizers came to that market where the younger, the healthier individuals uh, decided to stay out. And so that made for a very unstable uh, marketplace. Um, there's flexible enrollment periods. So you'd see people come in and they would get services and then, then they would leave that. Um, there was very narrow, what they call age bands, narrow age bands and pricing. So before the exchange happened, the youngest, healthiest individuals and the older individuals for the same cost policy would be five to six times difference. And in the ACA, they limited that to three times. And so what happened, the, the older population, the premiums went down. The younger, they were artificially inflated. And so guess what happened with the younger, healthier individuals? They didn't, they didn't purchase. And so it, it just was uh, kind of a perfect storm there. Um, so I think what Blue Cross Blue Shield and others have done, they've made a decision for very rational reasons. And if you would look at that yourself, I think we would uh, probably came to the same conclusion. Um, when you lose money in one segment of your business, then you have to go to the employers and say, now I need to make it up on other segments of my business. And those products become less affordable as well. And so that spirals. And that's why I think you've seen a lot of these insurers make that decision. Um, so the result of that in the exchange side is competition goes down, uh, choice goes down, and premiums go up. And in fact, when Blue Cross Blue Shield made the decision to, to leave that, that only spreads the risk now in Nebraska among Aetna and Medica. And so they have, uh, since that time, raised their premiums. The Fed's allowed them uh, to do that as they will be taking on more risk uh, spread over two pairs. Now, there's something really interesting. I read an article uh, just yesterday in Modern Healthcare that what we're seeing in Nebraska is not the case necessarily across the U.S. Uh, there's some blues plans, and that's what this article was about, in states like Arkansas and Florida and Michigan and Western New York that are doing very well in exchange. And so we have to think, what is working in some states that in others is not working? And the article went into that a little bit. And some of the common uh, things that they saw in states where uh, the, those plans were profitable was Medicaid expansion did occur. And so um, the Medicaid, some of the, those high dollar services were being paid under the Medicaid uh, program. Um, the networks were very narrow, very selective. Uh, there was very aggressive negotiating uh, by those blues plans in those uh, states. And um, those plans also assumed the worst when it came to utilization. And so we're maybe plans here, there's, there were these risk corridor payments that didn't come through. Those plans assumed they weren't coming through from the beginning. Uh, they also assumed higher utilization. And so it is possible in the current uh, market to um, you know, be successful as we've seen. Um, but I think there are a lot of changes that need to be made to the basics of the ACA as well. So we see that more success across the U.S. Um, Dr. Zatterman, I wanted to bring you in here because um, you mentioned in your opening comments how in order to really bring the cost down, we need to get everybody covered. Do you have any thoughts on what Lee just said? Um, <clears throat> well, I certainly agree that, you know, there, there are several issues in there. And, and uh, I, I did find fascinating also 
that Medicaid expansion was one of the reasons why the health insurers in the marketplace actually did better because it took out that group up to 138 percent, and that was part of the reason it helped them with their costs. Don't forget, these are people who have set aside their health care. The people that don't have insurance are the people that have set aside their health care. They all had, you know, they all had a variety of chronic illnesses, uh, I suspect, and that that helped drive the price. They may have had joints that needed replacement, any one of a number of things that did it. Had they been in the health care system in some sort of fashion before, of course, those things hopefully would have been taken care of along the way. More importantly, preventive care would have been done. You know, if we're going to control health care costs in this country, we have to control chronic diseases because that's where the majority of our overall health care costs come from. So prevention's highly important, not just think simple things like vaccination, but again, back to the things of talking to people, helping them figure out how they can stop smoking, helping them understand how they can uh, control weight, helping them with early diabetes to stay on a diet and take their medications. Uh, if you don't have insurance, sometimes medications now continue to grow in price and they simply can't afford to do it. People now make the choice of whether they eat or take their medications in some cases. So all of those things in having everyone in the system in some fashion with paid health care coverage offers opportunities for better care. Mm -hmm. yeah, you brought up uh, the cost of prescription drugs. We're certainly going to dive into that a little bit later because that is one of the big drivers. Uh, Jeff, I wanted to get your thoughts uh, on uh, you know what you're seeing in the employer marketplace and, and in particular as it relates to these fully insured plans. Well, I, I agree. I, I, w I agree with Dr. Zetterman. You know, there has to be a lot of changes made. You know, there's one thing to say change, but there's another thing to actually do it as a lifestyle. Um, you know, what we've been trying to do is we've been trying to hit people in the pocketbook to change our lifestyle, but un un unfortunately, uh, the data shows that's not working too well. So, helping um, is is a you know is is a great cause. But lifestyle change is a, is a different one, in my mind. Uh, what I'm seeing, frankly, uh, in large self-funded and fully insured cases, costs are going up. They aren't going to go down. Uh, they're rising uh, exponentially. Um, they're also highly fluctuating on a month-to-month -month basis. And so um, we're charged with the other side of it. Um, while we understand lifestyle change needs to take place, we're trying to get to a place where we can help finance some of this to flatten out costs. Now, I'm not selling banking against health care, but in some, at some point in my mind, uh, the banking industry has to get involved with the health care industry and, and create some sort of a, a bright line. Um, that might sound a little radical, but I've seen it work. Uh, I've seen it work very effectively with organizations across the country. All right, great. Um, got a couple questions coming in from the audience, so we're going to get you all involved. Uh, the first one is, um, how can we get an FAA-like safety system for healthcare? For example, the aviation industry used air reporting processes for decades, and there's no safer way to travel than commercial air. How can we get the medical professional to uh, adopt a similar system? Anybody have any thoughts on that question? Let me just start by saying um, this would be a very difficult thing to do. Uh, on the other hand, if you go back to look at what I said before about whatever you want to call it, big data, whatever, that would be a way to begin to look at it. Secondly, having an organization that overviews healthcare in general could do it. Remember, we, we, don't, we don't need to make this a pejorative system. 
it shouldn't be something that you know. I, I not to say that the FAA is uh, is pejorative, but uh, you know, it's not so much about. It's about promoting safety and quality, and making it as good as it can be. Healthcare is risky. You can't have an operation without risk. It does not exist. There's an old joke amongst physicians that minor surgery is something done on someone else. Uh, and there's a lot of truth in that because there's always risk in everything we do. Simply administering a medication to a patient carries a risk because you don't know how they're going to respond to it the first time they receive that drug. So I don't know that an FAA-like thing could do it, but I do believe that having organizations that look at the data, that look at the opportunities for healthcare, the find, for example, in Nebraska, the foci of lymphoma, finding the areas of cancer, finding the areas of a variety of other problems, and then saying, what's different there? You know, about 30 or 40 years ago, an internist out in Kearney said, you know, I'm seeing all kinds of patients with lymphoma in the Kearney area. You, you need to take advantage of those sort of facts and, and look at them and then say, what's different? Why is there a risk factor for certain things out there? Uh, so that we can begin to learn more about disease and hopefully offset some of the problems. I like the question. I, I like the question a lot because it talks about standardization like the FAA has. And, you know, none of us would get on a plane if we didn't know that the pilot and the crew was going through some standardized pre-flight uh, routine. Sometimes that's aggravating. You're sitting on a plane and they find a little smudge and have to figure it out. But the same doesn't hold true for surgery. Any of us is ready to go, you know, under anesthesia and go on the table and, and uh, there isn't a standardization there. Now, what I think is really powerful is what I'm seeing locally within our accountable care organization is we have physicians coming together at night from Nebraska Medicine and Methodist Health System. We have 13 different committees that are working on how do we best standardize care and practice towards the evidence. And medicine is a lot of what's called art, but there's also very clear science. And there's very clear information to say, if you treat a diabetic this way, if you treat someone that's a newly diagnosed hypertensive with these drugs and do, do these follow-up things, chances are outcomes are gonna be better. And so that's what we're trying to do is say, how do we raise the standard of care across the network so every patient, wherever they come in, whether it's a clinic out in West Omaha or down on 42nd Street or at, or at 84th and Dodge, gets that same standard of care. And so I think um, in, this, in this case, it's better that that's driven by the physicians within the system that say, no, it's not because someone's telling us to do this. It's because every patient deserves the best care, and we want to come together and drive that best care for them. And so that's, that's where I hope um, to see, see that going. And if I could add it, I think to take it one step further is getting people to understand what uh, areas of the delivery system to enter into. Don't go to the emergency room, for example, when you have uh, a sore throat. Yeah, that's that's a big piece of it. So when you look at when you look at what's driving costs, it's not physician visits, it's not pharmaceuticals. Although costs are going up, you know they're still less than twenty percent of the total health healthcare dollar. It's ER visits, it's readmissions. So. And readmissions aren't necessarily the fault of the hospital. People think that. It's, it's more how is that person coordinated when they get discharged from the hospital. And then what I call soft admissions or people that are admitted to the hospital that really shouldn't have been in the first place because we didn't take care of them uh, in, in the ambulatory setting. That's what's driving hospital costs. So if we could get around, let's, let's provide a more consistent, high-quality patient experience in our clinics and the ambulatory care system, I think that's where a big opportunity is to, to save costs. Back to your previous question. Yeah. 
And, and there are some initial programs going on that are being looked at around the country uh, with some health care systems in which they're guaranteeing outcomes. Absolutely. In other words, if, if the outcome is not what, what was expected, uh, there may be no charges uh, that are attached to the, to the care that's provided. So those sort of things do go on. And there are systems in which uh, you, do, you do go through a series of checks. Uh, there's a lot of checklist systems. If you look at patients in particular type of care, they do go through a series of checklists every day, particularly the nurses in the intensive care units with patients on ventilators have a series usually of a bundle of five or six things that they go through every day with that particular patient. So there's a lot of those sort of activities that are gradually improving it. There's no question that healthcare is safer today than it ever was before, but we still have a ways to go. Mm -hmm. Hey, Jeff, in your experience, uh, when, when you're out talking to employers and strategies that they're uh, utilizing, are, are they doing things like bundled payment and, and other things? Absolutely, they are. Um, they're also looking at things like concierge medicine. And I was going to ask the doctor if he had any, that was actually my question sure. of him, uh, <laughs> instead of me trying to articulate something that sounds possibly intelligent. but. Uh, I've, I've seen and I've been approached by a lot of concierge um, medicine providers. Do you, have a, do you have any perspective on that? And you know, the only thing I would add is uh, actually we just passed a law in the state of Nebraska this past year that permits that type of uh, medical care to be done. Um, first of all, I have no problem with concierge medicine. Concierge medicine basically is usually a physician uh, or a nurse practitioner that takes a panel of patients that's smaller, charges them some sort of a fee. That might be a monthly fee, that might be an annual fee, and in return for that, they, they guarantee them access, basically. Uh, and, you know, in fact, uh, for some, for some uh, people who charge a fair amount of money, they might only have 200 patients. The average family physician has somewhere around 2,000 to 2,500 patients generally uh, in their practice. Uh, so they have their 200 patients and, and therefore if they need to be seen, they call them up and, and uh, they see them whenever, they, whenever they're available. The only issue with that is if I'm a solo practicing physician in a small town of 1,000 people, I can't do that. There's an ethical issue here for me that also pops up, and that is I owe all thousand people in that community the opportunity for care. So while I could have a concierge practice for some of them, perhaps uh, I can't do it for all uh, and require all of them to pay money beyond their insurance because uh, usually in those sort of circumstances, uh, they then don't bill the insurance company at all for the care. So it has pluses and minuses, but I have no problem with concierge medicine. It certainly gives you more personal access than ever before. Great. Well, my favorite example of concierge medicine is that show Royal Pains on the USA Network. I don't know if anybody saw that with Hank Med. Uh, great show. Uh, kind of gives you an idea of what goes on there, but I think that's a, a critical component. And I think another one uh, we've talked about already a little bit, but I want to dive into more is uh, the issue of data. Um, more effective utilization of data seems like it could solve many of these problems. Uh, but what are the roadblocks that are facing the industry when it comes to the utilization of data to lower costs? I think the, bi the big one is data is just in so many different silos. So we have prescription drug data in one silo. We have claims data, uh, medical claims data in another silo. We have lab data over here. We have, you know, physician's data system. And, and you know, some of, the, some of the systems have enterprise-wide data systems where they can share. But then you're transferred in. Let's say you're in a small town. You get transferred into Omaha. Um, a lot of times they don't have access to that information. So what's the first thing they do? They run, rerun all those tests. Uh, not necessarily the best thing for the patient, definitely not the best thing for cost. 
And so, you know, within the state, there's the Nebraska Health Information Initiative, and their goal is really to, to try to solve that, to have a health insurance exchange of information. Um, the problem we have today is not all um, physicians and hospitals are in that system. So it, it still remains an incomplete record. Centrally at the, our accountable care organization, we're bringing together the data centrally, claims data and clinical data from our health system partners and our 1,450 physicians into one centralized database. And hopefully what we uh, hope to see from that is where's the opportunities? Where, where are gaps in care? Where, where can we consistently raise the quality of care? And what's driving the cost of care? And how can we come together to address those things? So I just think, uh, you know, none of us would put our money in a bank where we couldn't go anywhere across the U.S. And, and withdraw money from an ATM. And the health insurance industry has just not gotten to that point. And some of it is safety and privacy and protection of, of health data. But if you think about the banking in information, that's, that's pretty secure data as well. So I think, um, you know, CMS is driving some interoperability standards that are coming. Uh, we don't know if those will be delayed or not, but uh, but um, I, I think um, things are going to get better there. But right now, we're just very siloed in the data approach. Dr. Zetterman, you, you brought up kind of a, what was it, a statewide database as something necessary. Um, do you see that happening anytime soon? <clears throat> I think the biggest issue will be cost more than anything else. As, as uh, Mr. Anke points out, they're very much... Uh, uh, related to the silos that are there. So you've got claims data. So claims tells you how many times tests are done, but it doesn't tell you the outcomes of the tests. So then you've got the patient-related data that you need as well. And even though we all have electronic health records, or the vast majority of us do anymore, even in our private offices, uh, the nurse practitioners, PAs, physicians, et cetera, still have uh, uh, it, linking all of them together and then having a computer system that can gather it all together will be a crucial issue. So while it's a issue that I think is desperately needed, uh, it'll be down the road because of cost. Yeah, I think so. That, that uh, The other interesting thing that I, I've noticed uh, with regards to data is uh, this emergence of artificial intelligence. I don't know if anybody's heard of that, but uh, for, for example, Watson, you might have seen those commercials from IBM's Watson with uh, Bob Dylan, um, how they are uh, going to use that supercomputer to really look at healthcare data and ways to uh, improve cancer treatments, for example. I think that's really exciting. Uh, Jeff, um, could you give the audience some examples of some of the things you've seen uh, in your experience uh, on how uh, leveraging uh, data can, can help companies reduce costs? I mean, I, uh, there are wonderful companies out there that will take separate databases and merge them and come out with very exceptional data and out, out, you know, outcome data. The problem is that I've seen is that uh, on the other side or the user side, they don't really know how to interpret it that well. It sounds like uh, your organization is doing a great job, you know, but there are those that are not. And um, I've got a lot of examples on how to use data uh, to the advantage of the, on the employer side when it comes to health care. I think it's really important to understand, you know, what is going on, what, why is this happening based on the decisions I've made. And that's all in the data. It just needs somebody back interpreting correctly. Um, data is all good and fine. It's very costly. Um, you can slap, you, you can slap a, a large file of data on your computer, but can you interpret it correctly? So. It costs you money to get it, and it costs you money to interpret it correctly, and time. So, you know, I, I don't know what the magic wand is there, but it certainly is all in the data. Um, the doctor said big data at the beginning, and I agree. It, it's there. It's how, how we interpret it. 
Well, the ACA, Dr. Zetterman, didn't have uh, some things for comparative effectiveness research, and was it the PCORI fee that employers have to pay, but that's actually going to fund uh, some of this data research, and in particular, evidence-based medicine. Yeah, right. Um, any other thoughts on data before we switch to our, our next question? Nope. All right. See you. None. Uh, this is a really interesting one. One of my favorite uh, shows is HBO's Vice, and they did, uh, and it's a great news program. But uh, this one is on uh, antibiotics. Development of new antibiotics given the concern of entering a post-antibiotic era. Uh, some infections are now uh, pan-resistant. Um, specifically in a free market, how do you incentivize a drug pharma company to spend R&D dollars on a drug that, if used properly, should be used as little as possible? Anybody care to take a stab at that? <laughs> Lee, well, by default, gets that one. You, you know, I, I think, so with any drug, not just antibiotics, we're, we're trying to look at appropriate use, right? And so, unfortunately, antibiotics, they've been uh, vastly overused, especially for the treatment of things like sinusitis, a viral infection for which an antibiotic is doing no good. Actually, one of the things that we're doing right now within the clinics, because it's cough and cold season, is putting up a lot of patient education to say, uh, uh, antibiotic doesn't do any good for the common cold. And so we actually have these cough and cold kits that we have physicians that they're able to give patients to say, here's symptomatic treatment rather than me giving you an antibiotic. And so hopefully, you know, we have better uh, longevity with those drugs. But when it comes down to appropriate use and the number of patients being treated, there's a whole class of drugs now called orphan drugs. There may be as few as 300 to 1,000 people nationwide that may have an ailment, and so there's not a lot of incentive for pharmaceutical companies to produce and do the research and, and development for those. And so what the, what the U.S. government's allowed to happen is you get a longer patent life on those, and of course, uh, they become very expensive. And so, you know, there's no easy, easy answer uh, to that, but um, hopefully we can put uh, the incentives still in place where uh, pharmaceutical companies will still do the research even for those um, non-blockbuster drugs that have hundreds of thousands of pa patients taking those. Yeah, one of the other problems I might add is, uh, you know, the first antibiotic I ever learned anything about was teramycin, which is a tetracycline. I was 12 years old. I was in the feed mill with my father, and we were grinding feed for our for our cattle. Uh, and there was a big sign on the board that said, "Add teramycin to your feed because your cattle will raise will will gain weight faster." It's well known, and so antibiotics in the animal industry has also added to resistance that's developed because the bacteria don't care whether it's an animal or a human. Uh, you know, we get some of those same bacteria that, that are potentially going to receive that antibiotic just because it was, in, it was in animals as well. So there's a lot of areas in which we can do a better job of, of antibiotic control, but certainly appropriate use for the human side is by far the most critical. Great observation, Dr. Zetterman. Um, interesting topic. Did anybody else have any other questions? Here, uh, feel free to write them down. We've got a couple more. Uh, the next one is on the issue, um, uh, a contentious issue for some, which is uh, the public option, which is uh, what we've seen. Um, do you? Uh, I'm hearing that the public option uh, might be coming back uh, as a result of uh, the uh, financial challenges with the Affordable Care Act. Uh, is that true? Uh, could you explain the public option to the audience and talk about whether or not that's good? I think for that's your, your question. I'm supposed to take that one. Do you guys have any <laughs> thoughts on that one? I, well, I think the uh, public option, if you uh, read uh, Secretary Clinton's uh, article in, uh, I believe it was the New England Journal of Medicine, she outlined her uh, her uh, plans uh, for health care. And uh, 
we we've also seen the president in his uh, remarks uh, in um, outline this this issue. I think the public option is going to be uh, an issue that's going to come up within the next several years because, uh, frankly, the Affordable Care Act uh, is probably not going to be able to stand on its own weight uh, with unless uh, some serious improvements are made. And I think um, it, it is a discussion that should be had. And uh, I'm not going to speak to the uh, clinical side of it because I think Dr. Zetterman uh, could probably talk about that a little bit better. Are, are some people in your industry for a public option? You know, actually, it's not an area that, that I've heard a lot of people talk about, but I, I do agree with you. I think it's very likely uh, to come back. Uh, in Congress as a potential uh, to build on it. And, and how it's set up will be the interesting question. But it would certainly, the advantage would be is it would be available across state lines, for example, because it would be a, presumably a nationwide public option, much like Medicare is a nationwide public mm -hmm. option that, that people have access to. So uh, I do think, I do, uh, as you've already said, uh, think that it will come back. Well, I, I think the co-ops were um, another piece of that. And so we've seen, I think, 12 co-ops now um, go under. And so, you know, with fewer options within each state, including Nebraska, I think it's, it's more likely to happen. Assuming, as it was stated earlier, that Obamacare will not be completely uh, unwound, what can we learn from other developed countries that could improve the effectiveness and outcomes uh, of our health care system? I think that's a fantastic question. Um, Dr. Zetterman, you talked about uh, state-based uh, solutions. Uh, I think that's something that uh, is really good. You, could you talk a little bit about your work when you were with uh, Chairman of the Nebraska Medicine uh, and the uh, Health Reform Task Force that you guys did a few years ago? Well, as I, I outlined, uh, the eight building blocks that that group came came along with, and, and clearly within that group, uh, while not everyone uh, agreed with all of the options of how you expanded care to all Nebraskans, that was an important issue uh, along the way. Um, I think, you know, for me personally, it's unconscionable to have 47 million people in this country that were uninsured. That, to me, is the starting point where I start. That's where we were. Uh, before the Affordable Care Act came along. Uh, and as you've heard, we've dropped it dramatically by the availability of things. And one of the simple things that we did, uh, and it did increase the cost for health insurance uh, to a small degree, was simply allowing children to stay on their parents' health insurance till age 26. It was a dramatic event. It got them through college, often got them through their advanced degree, uh, and they didn't have to go out and buy insurance. Insurance in that age group, uh, you know, particularly, uh, uh, is uh, can while you would say it's not expensive, it's also the era of which pregnancy occurs, and so as a consequence, you always have that as part of the costs that are going into it. So that alone was a dramatic benefit that came out of this uh, gradually advancing the the total issues of healthcare costs. And I do think, um, you know, that that uh, importantly, if you look at the data that seems to be there in Medicaid. Uh, in the states that expanded, there were distinct benefits that were seen, including in cost. I will say, however, that uh, there's a, an article just this past week in, the, in one of the medical journals that points out that in one state, it has not reduced emergency room use after two years. So it's not perfect. Uh, it still needs a variety of it. There needs to be other incentives. Uh, and there are programs, of course, that provide disincentives. There are states now uh, with Medicaid expansion that actually you, you have to pay a fee to go to the emergency room above and beyond 
the, ca the cost of your insurance. So there are a variety of things I think that we can do to help make things work better in the Affordable Care Act. Has there been anything you've seen from other countries uh, that you think is, that works that uh, we're not taking advantage of here? I know one book that I've read that uh, really enlightening was The Healing of America by T.R. Reed. I don't know if you've read that book, but he has a shoulder problem and goes to several countries uh, to experience treatment and uh, documents his experience there. Really uh, good insights uh, out of yeah. there. Have you? Uh, do you have anything to add on that? You know, the only thing I, I would say, and just to bring it up in case in case uh, Dr. Hanke or, uh, has any comments about it, is is the issue of uh, in England, for example, and one of the most controversial things that came along, you already mentioned it, uh, in, in the Affordable Care Act was the issue of should we be evaluating things before they're utilized in the public sector mm -hmm. so that we can look at costs. And I can give you an example of something that I uh, would suggest was something that we found out after it had been in the public sector and we'd spent many millions of dollars to find out that it didn't work. Uh, had we been in England where they have NICE, and I don't remember what NICE stands for, but they would have done an evaluation before they ever provided it to the public. We're a country in which people don't expect to stand in line. We're also a country in which people expect to, to get uh, uh, disaster-related relief, so that if I suddenly have a heart attack, I expect uh, potentially to have a heart transplant if that's what I need. Um, yet in other countries, uh, there is some rationing that occurs, and that's, of course, the issue that probably scares Americans more than anything else. It scares me. Uh, I'm not sure that I am, since I'm older than many of you in the room, I'm not sure that I want to be at the end of the rationing stick either, uh, because age will clearly be a factor when that comes to happen. Um, but saying that, um, you know, I think I think there are a number of issues that in other states or in other countries, uh, social programs especially, uh, that have benefited things. Uh, and some of that is actually in the social structure of some of those countries. I, I made this comment at a meeting I was at not long ago uh, that if you look at the social structure of certain ethnic groups, they're much better at taking care of their elders outside of nursing homes, outside of hospitals, outside of a variety of things that help control costs than we are in the United States. And, and so I think there's a lot of little things that we could be doing that would be beneficial. Yeah, and I, I was just going to add that very point. I think a lot of what we could learn from other countries is how they deal with end-of-life care. We spend a lot of money in the last 18 months of life. A lot of times we try heroic efforts to extend lives at not a very good quality of life. And so I think what they <clears throat> do well in, in a lot of other foreign countries is they bring that person home, surround them by family, keep them comfortable in the last, um, you know, uh, months of their, weeks of their life versus, you know, we spend a lot of money during that time. And so I think the socioeconomic factor, uh, the end of life care, and something uh, Dr. Zedman, Zetterman mentioned earlier, uh, just the focus on wellness and um, alternatives to medis medications and taking some personal responsibility are, are things we can learn from other countries. Um, hey, Jeff, you know, one of the main things that people don't realize is that majority of folks get insurance or benefits through their employers. Um, can you talk about some of the things uh, you're seeing from employers and how your organization works with them to kind of show them different alternative strategies that they might not be aware of that can uh, really help reduce costs and, and get people that might have probably waived coverage something at least uh, that can help them? Yeah, I mean, we, you know, uh, our company was built uh, along with a lot of other n new and emerging companies for a sector of the population that are in the low income categories. And to be quite frank with you, that's I think that's where we've obviously fallen down. Um, we've built products again that people can use and at affordable price. 
and we've built products not with the tax ramification of the ACA in mind. We built products to address those individuals that just don't have access because of their financial situation. And we've done it with a, an affordable approach with a capped approach. And the premise is, you know, quite frankly, is to get them in the system. Because the more you get them in the system, the more data there is to really find out what we can do further to downturn the cost. So um, we've looked at uh, a lot of different vertical industries. Uh, we work with a very large Korean base in California um, to take care of those uh, of, their, uh, of their population where they haven't been taken care of before. And we're real proud of, proud of that. Uh, we've looked at the union population where, again, the, an apprenticeship, you know, they're, they're left there for three to five years before they're eligible to even become a part of the union uh, laborer, painters, elevator workers, and give them affordable opportunities to enter into a program that's outside of the exchange, make it affordable, get some data, and move forward, and, and, and hopefully get, uh, you know, get healthier along the way. Um, this goes all the way down from not just the individual, that spouse, child, and entire family. So. Um, I think we've done a good job. We didn't go into it to make a buck. We went into it to fill a gap. And so um, I'm afraid I, I've talked from different perspectives than the two gentlemen to my left. But the, you know, they're they're coming from the medical side. I'm coming from the you know the advocate of that of that individual employer side. We have to make it affordable, and we have to use leveraging. If you're a large employer that um, you have some spiraling healthcare costs, um, there's other ways to help the population get uh, healthier by negotiating with a carrier or a suitable carrier. Um, they're ready to negotiate, and I'll tell you, uh, on the other side of that, they're looking to um, leverage their wellness programs as well. There's a lot of employers out there that just won't take them because they don't want to spend the money. Um, there's a lot of carriers out there that would be more than happy to come to the table uh, work out an arrangement where they can integrate those wellness tools. You have to use those wellness tools in order to stabilize your cost. There are some opportunities to have those conversations in this market today, and that's where that's where I come from. Right. Well, that's a great point. Another thing I'd like to add as far as tools to helping to reduce the cost is uh, looking at price transparency, and we just got this question. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give some thoughts on a disparity in price for similar procedures and the lack of visibility to the public of these prices? Uh, how do you suggest we combat this? Does the healthcare industry truly want price transparency? So I, I, I negotiated rates when I was on the Blue Cross side, so I, I am, I'm aware of the different uh, rates that are in the market. <clears throat> you know, within this market, within, you know, a relatively short radius, you can have a, a knee replacement done for anywhere from 25000 to 45000 And I think um, you could make the case that the place doing it for 25000 probably has done more cases and probably produces better outcomes. And so, you know, there's a lot of um, opportunity, I think, to have a discussion and awareness. And it, it goes back to what Dr. Zetterman said about bundled payments. And so we should be able to say, here's what we're paying. We think this is a rational price to pay for each one of these services. And here's the outcomes that we expect. And there's actually warranties. If there's a readmission, that's something that's not paid for on the back end. And when you have a bundled payment, the theory is 
people will look at that and say, okay, what do I need to do to be successful in that? How can I provide the highest quality service for the costs they're offering? When I look at everything in the chain, so after you know the knee replacement occurs, there could be skilled nursing. How do I hold them accountable to higher standards as well, to making sure they're better? And so, yes, we in the healthcare industry, we want uh, to have smarter spending. We want to eliminate waste. We want to provide higher value care for patients. That goes from quality uh, to cost. The thing I'm a little frustrated with on the price transparency tools is they're largely directed towards consumers. And usually when you sit down with your physician and say, hey, um, here's your diagnosis, here's what we need to do, that's not the time when you say, hey, doc, I'm going to go home and check on a website, and I'm going to kind of look at different prices, and then I'm going to get back to you and, and have the discussion of where I'm, I'm really going to go. I think the physicians are as in the dark about it as consumers are. And I think the physicians and their teams, if they're going to be strong advocates uh, for patients to say, here's where we recommend uh, you have this uh, procedure done, I'm very com comfortable in the quality of the outcome, and guess what, I also know what it costs. And so myself and my team can be the right advocate for you. And so I think, again, back to the, the sunlight's the best disinfectant, if we could have better knowledge about what those differences are in both cost and quality, I think ultimately that's going to lead to better outcomes and lower cost. So yeah, we, we would welcome that. Okay, I got time for one more question and then I'll ask you guys to uh, give us a concluding remarks. Thanks to all of you for, for your questions. They've been fabulous. Um, final question, the ACA is focused on availability of care, but the panel has mentioned rising costs and the significant cost of care in the U.S. multiple times. Any thoughts on how we shift the balance of focus to policymakers between cost and access? Well, I think specifically around cost, change is coming, uh, as Dr. Zetterman alluded to. In, in 2019, uh, physicians are going to be held responsible for the quality of care they provide, uh, for the cost of those services, um, for things they're doing to Im improve their clinical practice and the way they use electronic uh, tools to better coordinate care. And so today, you know, we're predominantly fee-for-service, and we're slowly shifting, led by the government, to look more at quality and outcomes. I always say today physicians are paid to take shots. We need to move it to where you're paid to make baskets. You want to have positive outcomes. Today, the more you do, the more you make. In the future, we want it to be no. How you do is how you're paid. And so I'm really thankful and excited for what CMS is pushing through MACRA for a few reasons. Uh, first of all, the government is the largest payer. And so where, where they lead, we think others will follow. We'll have the same focus with our commercial plans as we do with the government as far as uh, holding ourselves accountable to cost and quality. Um, and the other, other reason that it's exciting that it's starting with the government is that is the most, that is the sickest population. So there's the biggest opportunity. So if we can make it work for a Medicare population, we can make it work for a commercial population as well. Um, beyond that, what's happening in 2019, we're going to start seeing more risk. And so if we don't perform as a system, if we don't hit certain quality metrics or cost metrics, then we'll be held accountable in the form of uh, rebates back to those payers. And so things are evolving pretty quickly. Uh, last Friday, the final rule came out on MACRA. It's about 2,300 pages. Uh, I, made, I made it through it Tuesday night, so I got through uh, most of it, skimmed some sections, but I, I did get through it all. And, and what's really changed there is, is 2017, to, uh, which is your base year for 2019, it's going to be a little more of a transition year than the, it was originally proposed. Um, but quickly in 2020 and 2021, it's going to become much more stringent as far as measuring on those cost and quality outcomes. So uh, I think that trans 
formation's overdue and it's welcome and and i'm looking forward uh to being having our physicians and, and health systems be successful in those new models because it's value to the patient so Dr. Zetterman, any thoughts on that and final remarks? Um, the one thing I would just add to what Dr. Henke said, and that is that, it, just so you're aware, uh, when you look at uh, MACRA and how it's going to change reimbursement uh, in Medicare, there are both winners and losers, so that there will be an equal number of people who make 9% more in Medicare reimbursement as there are people who lose 9% of their income. So it's it's a revenue neutral uh, device. Uh, it does have does have some extra money put in it for the highest performers, the ones that are doing really well, so that they can they can actually get above a nine percent uh, income rise. Um, but in fact, uh, it it puts the risk. But the real issue is going to be that the drive towards quality, the drive towards safety is there, whether it's an independent practice, whether it's a group practice, whether it's a hospital organization that's doing it, this is now becoming the mantra for basically for healthcare, whether you talk about pharmacists, physicians, nurse practitioners, PAs, clinical psychologists, psychiatrists, whatever, uh, this drive will make a dramatic difference, I think, over the next 10 or 20 years. All right, Jeff, any final thoughts? I would, my only thought on that one is I was just thinking about the underwriting of some of these groups and how that's going on now. And because of um, the ACA uh, um, programs, it has driven the cost off. There, there's no doubt about it. Um, for those that are in the system now that haven't been in the past, the underwriting on the other side with uh, specific self-funded and fully insured plans is just escalating. So again, that will go back. That I, I'm thinking about it just from an economic standpoint, uh, not not necessarily from the healthcare standpoint. But that's 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 the financial side. Okay, great. Well, thank you to our panelists, uh, and thank you to KIOS. Can we give them a round of applause? You've been listening to a special luncheon broadcast from the Omaha Press Club on Noon Forum. On today's program, we've heard a panel discussion on the topic, Clear and Unbiased Facts About Changes in Healthcare Without All the Hype. The members of the panel were Rowan Zetterman, a professor of internal medicine at the University of Nebraska Medical Center and formerly chief of staff for the Nebraska Western Iowa Veterans Affairs Healthcare System, Lee Hanke, chief executive officer of the Nebraska Health Network, formerly an executive at Prime Therapeutics and Blue Cross Blue Shield of Nebraska, and Jeffrey Bamoris, a senior director with Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Illinois. The moderator was Sean McGuire, founder of E.D. Bellis, and a former health policy staff member for the United States Senate Finance Committee. This program, co-sponsored by Marketplace Nebraska, E.D. Bellis, and the Omaha Press Club, was recorded by Omaha Public Radio on Thursday afternoon, October 20, 2016, for broadcast at this time. Special thanks to Sean McGuire of E.D. Bellis for helping to make the recording and broadcast of this program possible. The Omaha Press Club holds these noontime educational forums each month. The next program will be this Thursday, November 17th at 12 noon. At that time, we'll hear a discussion of last week's presidential election and its implications for the next four years. The guests will be Republican J.L. Spray and Democrat Vince Powers. If you'd like to attend this or other future programs in the series, call the Omaha Press Club at 402-345-8008. These events are open to both members and non-members of the Omaha Press Club. The Omaha Press Club is located on the 22nd floor of the First National Center, 16th and Dodge in downtown Omaha. 
Complete Noon Forum listings, as well as an archive of over 600 previous broadcasts, are available on our website, kios.org. Now, this is your producer and host, Bob Coat, thanking you for listening.